All right, Kelly, welcome to... Oh, I have to yell. That's right. I just said I have to yell. <laughs> I don't want to yell. I don't want to yell this time. So I'm just going to keep it subdued. Kelly, we have a lot to talk about today, so we're just going to get mixed up. Confusion. Right out of the way. Man, it needs a killing me. There's just too many people And they're all too hard to please Alright Kelly, this is a very special month. This is band month. The band. The band. Or band. Or dub band. Maybe we're talking about the P. Diddy influence 90s MTV show featuring dub band. Oh man. Yeah. Wasn't that show called Making the Band? Making the Band, but they were dub band. Oh, damn. Which I feel like Columbia should be like, we're suing the shit out of you. Because <laughs> there's only one the band. Right. And there's only band, one band that matters, and that's The Clash. But there's also this band, <laughs> the band. Kelly, we are going to spend this month looking at the band. Before we get into our format and everything like that, what is your relationship with the band? I've heard the song The Wait. That's it. Cool. <laughs> and you like that song, presumably. Yeah. Okay, so you good. just don't you just don't know. They're just no. kind of an unknown entity to you. We've certainly talked about them with Bob Dylan, and mm-hmm. uh, we've listened to Planet Waves, where they play on it. A lot of our uh, like live renditions and stuff, especially from the 66 tour. We also watched No Direction Home, so you do have a right. basis of, of them being there. Like um, the Judas moment was the band backing him in London as the Hawks. You know the Hawks, of course, mm-hmm. is the band. And, oh, Home Improvement. Yeah, right. So not really, because he just he was the drummer for them during that tour, but he's not part of the band. Oh. He's not in the band. Okay. Well then. So then, really. Just the wait. Yeah, just the wait. Okay. <laughs> so we are going to be tackling this in, a, in kind of a weird way. So we are going to do what I call the Alkaline Trio formula. Nice. Now, this might be weird in a, in a podcast about the band to talk about a modern-day pop-punk band called Alkaline Trio. But they did something really interesting in 2014, 2015 called Pass Live. And they went to cities like New York, Chicago, where they're from, San Francisco, where they were also sort of tangentially from. And they just hunkered down for four-day residencies at a, at a place. And they played all of their eight albums that they had. But instead of doing it chronologically or randomly, I think they sort of challenged their own audience base because... Everyone is excited for one album, but is probably not excited for another. And they're one of those bands that I I fell off, for sure. I fell off as the years went by. But they took their first album and paired it with their last album. Took their second album, paired it with their seventh, their sixth, with their third, and their fourth with their fifth. I think it's a really challenging um, dichotomy to be in if you're a fan because yeah. you're like, which which ones do I want to see? It's really because, alienating. Well, it is. <laughs> because for me, I want to see Goddammit, their very first record. Front to back, are you kidding me? That would be unreal. But then they're going to turn around and play My Shame is True, which is their, their last record before their newest record, which is actually fantastic. So they've made a little roundabout turn themselves. But I didn't really care for that album. But I have to listen to it if I want to go to Goddammit. Their second album, Maybe I'll Catch Fire, has the song Radio, which is probably their biggest song. Sure. Uh, I'm sure I've heard it. Yeah. Take my radio to bathe with you, plugged in and ready to Nope. Fall. Okay. Uh, have the song Radio, but then there's another album called This Addiction, which is not really great. So you got to deal with one <laughs> of the two. And you kind of see where I'm going. It's kind of, they get progressively worse as it goes on. No offense, uh, Alkaline Trio. 
uh, From Here to the Infirmary is probably their biggest hit. And it has to be coupled with uh, an album called Agony and Irony, which is okay. That would probably be the show that I went to because they are sort of connected. But I think four and five is probably your most interesting because they're one right after the other. So Good Morning with Crimson. And I think that is probably your money show because it's like the songs you kind of like all the way through. And it's going to be a good show. The most consistent. Love and hate. (laughs) Love, sort of hate, kind of like, kind of hate. And then it's like, boom, sweet spot. I'd rather be oh, listening mediocre. to God damn it, but I certainly don't want to listen to anything after Crimson. So this is this works for all. So we're going to be doing that with the band, and there's no easy way to do it. So we're going to start today by talking everything past The Last Waltz. So we'll get to The Last Waltz later, but that's where they broke up in 1978. Huge Scorsese-directed document, documentary. Everybody came out to play for it who was anybody. So we're probably uh, going to watch time. that. So we'll month. probably watch yeah. it at some point, uh, and we'll probably talk about it at some point. But... We're going to take everything post that and talk about it. There's only so many original songs that were written by whatever version of the band exists. So we'll get into that in a moment. So there's only a few. Uh, and Jubilation, their final record in 1998, has the most. But like their other two before that only had like one or two of songs that they wrote. So we're not doing the covers. We're only talking about the songs they did. And then we're going to couple that with their very first record, Music from Big Pink. So we're going to talk about the old songs first and then hit the new ones. Kind of the opposite. And probably that's what they did at the live shows. They probably started with My Shame is True, let the stragglers come in, and then closed it, closed it down with God Damn It. Yep. So we're going to close it down with music from Big Pink, which is definitely, obviously, what we're all here for. So Kelly, who is the band? I would love to know. According to the New York Times, in 1968, when they reviewed music from Big Pink, they said, quote, the band itself is composed of five seasoned young musicians who paid their country dues in the late 50s, touring with a Canadian rockabilly singer named Rompin' Ronnie Hawkins. Need your love and need it so bad. Without your sweet love, I know I'm going mad. Come on, baby, to read me like a man. On their own, the Hawks. They play backwater bars, scrounging to survive, and learning how to move people. So that's before they obviously met a little guy, just a little guy, called Bob Dylan. Who are the band? This is going to be important to know. Take notes if you're out there. No. Rick Danko. That, I, we've heard that name before. Levon Helm. Heard that one before, too. Garth Hudson. Okay. Richard Manuel. Mm-mm. And Robbie Robertson. Now we've talked a little bit. We've had a little a couple of episodes where we talked about the basement tapes. We've had Ye Heaven a Bottle of Bread. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, Clothesline Saga. We've had uh, Don't You Try Me Now, which right. was our shortest episode before last Monday's <laughs> episode. Uh, so we, we've talked a little bit about them, but they're sort of amorphous people. And as we get more into the band and sort of the basement tapes, we're going to talk a lot more about it. But Rick Danko, uh, Levon Helm, and Richard Manuel have all passed away. So the only surviving members are Garth Hudson, American Treasure, and Robbie Robertson. I guess Canadian treasure is the <laughs> proper way to put it. They're all Canadian except for Levon Helm, who's from Arkansas, uh, down there in the south. Uh, Danko died in 1999, so he uh, complications from years of being on the road and alcohol uh, led to his demise. Levon Helm died of cancer in 2012. Uh, he actually had a, a really resurgent um, career on his own, solo career. Uh, hmm. A lot of great uh, records right there uh, at the end of his 
at the end of his years, he had a live record too. He would he would hold shows in his barn, and one of them was nominated for a Grammy the year before he died. So that's pretty interesting. And famously, Richard Manuel committed suicide in 1986, um, and that like Bob Dylan was rocked by that pretty hard. And the band obviously never they were already kind of done at that point, but they were still kind of playing around. Uh, but Robbie Robertson and Hudson are still alive. So that's the band in a nutshell. Now, to talk about what they play, it's kind of a misnomer. Danko played the bass, but he also played the fiddle. He also sang. Levon Helm, of course, is helming the drums, but he also sings a bunch of songs, especially late band. He sings them all because Manuel is dead. Manuel sung most of the songs. Uh, is he, he the one with that crazy voice? With that voice. So oh, okay. most of most of Big Pink is is him. Okay. The weight famously is Levon Helm. Right. And uh, I think I think it's actually. Maybe it's Manuel in verse four. You know, yeah, crazy he, he does come in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that's that. But he also played piano, organ, drums as well. Robertson, of course, is the the heart, if you will, of the all of the electric and acoustic guitars. He also writes most of the songs, which we'll get into the drama there as well. And of course, Garth Hudson, who is a fucking treasure. He is one of the most accomplished organ players, piano players. Uh, he plays the soprano, tenor sax. The mm. dude is everywhere. Uh, he was also the guy pressing record on the basement tape. So shouts to my man, Garth. <laughs> so Kelly, let's start. There's three albums from the 1990s. Jericho, High on the Hog, which is one of the worst album covers I've ever seen in my life. Not only is it scary because it's like an anthropomorphized pig, but also its face is crooked. Uh-huh. Why? Why? In like the font? What? What's up? Oh, everything band? is bad. And, uh, and Jubilation, which is their final in 1998. So as I said, Jubilation has the most on it. So let's let's talk really quickly. We're just going to kind of go song by song. Uh, let's talk about Jericho. So there's two songs on here. One, Move to Japan, and one called The Caves of Jericho. Let's start with the good one, Caves of Jericho. <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to say, Move to Japan. No, because that is an offensive, horrible song. It sure is. Uh, it's hard to talk about them because we don't also don't know a whole lot about them. So th- I think these songs will make more sense as we go along. Mm-hmm. So this is really just kind of first impressions. I mean, for you, it's maybe a little bit more interesting to get your first takes. So if we're talking about Move to Japan and Caves of Jericho, what's your first thought of this band? Um, Move to Japan is awful. Move to Japan is awful. Yeah. Uh, Akira, I mean, Kurosako, Sapporo, Okinawa, girls with almond eyes eating seaweed and rice. It's a land of tradition, but I'm a man on a mission. Gross. Yeah. Not cool. Uh, yeah, definitely not a not a good not a good look. I mean, it really sounds like. Um, if you've ever had like a big synth or keyboard, sometimes they're preloaded with like beats. Um, it really sounds like somebody just hit one of those keys, like, and we just made a whole song out of that. That's fair. Yeah, it's a damning indictment of Garth Hudson. I'm sorry. It just really no. I think no variation. It's really synthetic. It's not super interesting, and like yeah, it just really sounds like that. And I think we'll get further into that thought later because I want to because I felt the same way, and I and I'm curious as to why I feel that way because I know how talented they are. But I think we have that problem with Bob Dylan. You're so fucking talented. What is this? What are you doing? Like, you, yeah. we know that you can do better. So it's mm-hmm. it's very jarring, I think. J- Caves of Jericho, though, I find it to be very pretty. And I find it to be a song that could have been played by almost anybody. Like, there's really nothing there that sort of stands out to me. Mm. But I think Levon Helm does what a good Levon Helm does, which is a really good drum beat. And he... He really sings it well. I, th- I think the song is kind of pretty. It's fun. They should have known the trouble was brewing. They should have seen what the old man knew. 
So Caves of Jericho, I didn't know who who's anybody is. I just like the guy with the crazy voice is gone. And oh. now I'm sad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he is. And actually he'll show up later and it's kind of it's kind of moving. So we'll get to that really in a moment. Uh, let's let's go to High on the Hog. We have Ramble Jungle. Oh man. And also, she knows. Also weirdly problematic and offensive. Ramble Jungle, I'm not even gonna like talk about it. The song is fucking bad. And I, it's all like we're going to Africa. I know, do, 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 do. but it also kind of sounds like a Dave Matthews Band song because it's got these weird fucking horns that sometimes really work. I mean, I'll, I'll, I want to really talk about their musicality when we talk about their good album. Because yeah. um, like, <laughs> yeah, this is really bad. There's yeah. so much shit going on. There's flutes and horns and bongos and just like, what's happening? Yeah. Not good. Anyway. Not good. Not good. No, um, no. And, and that's when I really just, I would listen to this and be like, what am I listening to? And then I would pull up Spotify and look at that cover. I'm like, Oh. oh no! Yeah, it was like because I listened to it so much, I kept tuning out, and then I would come back. It's like African. What are you doing? Yeah, what what is even happening? And again, these are mostly covers, so it's like you can see the band in place, but those those original songs are so bad that it's like I don't want to listen to Atlantic City. I don't want to listen to Blind Willie McTell. I don't want to listen to the covers because they're just gonna be kind of boring, kind of straightforward, straight on through. However, I will want to shout out the song she knows. Which is Richard Manuel, after he was dead, they put this song on here mm. of him playing live. That was him just on a piano singing. Yeah. Now, when my troubles start to get me down, she's always there. You know, she always can be found. Let's it wait too much on me. She always seems to be in touch with me. Jubilation 1998. Uh, it's kind of weird that a band, you would think that Jericho would have been like, we have a bunch of songs that we wrote, so now we're going to play them. But instead, they kind of got into a groove. And then in 1998, they thought, we have a bunch of songs now. Let's record them. I think that Jubilation stuff is way stronger than those other songs we just talked about. Yeah. To Japan and all of that are direct. It's Compared a little to more this, cohesive for sure. It's definitely more cohesive. And I think that that's uh, Aaron Horwitz can be credited to that. He was the uh, producer of that record. And he played on a couple of those songs too. And I think that that cohesion is really what they needed. Because I think they're all pretty big personalities. And obviously they're all friends. And that was the whole thing, the camaraderie of... Music from Big Pink is like what makes you want to listen to that. Like the interplay between them is so organic and perfect. Like you can tell they're friends. Mm-hmm. But I think that had kind of slipped away at this point. Like it didn't feel like that anymore. And maybe that's Robertson. Maybe Robertson was the glue, which I think they would all sort of agree with. I know. So let's go through the songs. Don't wait. It's uh, like it's like very swamp music. Is the only way I can describe it. That's good. Like really jammy swamp music. Yeah, I think that a lot of this is kind of swampy. I think yeah. that vibe does work. And Bob Dylan was doing swampy shit in 1997 with Time Out of Mind as well. Wouldn't it have been crazy if Bob and the band got back together to record? Did like, that happen? Time Out of Mind? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> I'm, but I'm always curious about it. Like, I mean, like Manuel dies and Bob Dylan is like heartbroken. Of course mm. he would be. But like, I just wonder how much they ever hang out. You know, does Bob ever call up and like, hey man, how's it going? You want to get some fries? Like. What? Does Bob Dylan do that? Does he eat fries? I don't know. Does he eat? Does he eat? That's a good question. Last train to Memphis. Memphis. 
is a pretty standard song. Um, it seems like they wanted Eric Clapton to come down and play. Or Danko, Danko said, quote, he's very busy at the time. Called him up to ask him. We ended up sending a tape to England. He put a guitar part on and sent it back. I liked it. Nice. So. It's got a cool, I think it's an accordion. Like, I think they're going for like a train whistle vibe, but it's like a. Yeah, Why guys love trains? Why guys do love trains? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think the last train to Memphis, I think the accordion, that does that does fit. It's nice. Yeah, it's all very, I think Swampy is a good good take, and it's a very southern record. It talks mm, about the south yeah. constantly, uh, obviously with Memphis, but then the next song, High Cotton. Yeah very cotton is in the south of course uh and that's where i was like oh this is kind of swampy and it's not really my thing just like the stuff before like i don't really like it but i do i, I you know the band do it well i thought this song was another good competent song and we've well, got playing harmonica throughout so you gotta love that it really struck me as like a nursery rhyme just kind of the it was very sing-songy yeah um and felt a little bit repetitive none of these i will say straight up like none of these songs really grab me i'm not a big uh, like country music fan and this mm-hmm. is really skirting it's like it feels very Louisiana mm-hmm. like it has that, that flavor to it I think it's because it's got so many instruments especially like ugh, horns and brass and yes. uh, that accordion too um, which is not bad but like uh, it's oh. not not my jam yeah it's not my jam either and that's really the truth because like this song you've got Helm playing harmonica throughout but then Garth just like hey somebody get me that tenor sax mm-hmm. just fucking goes nuts like what? every time the sax comes in I'm just like why you are not a fan. Every time. Not a fan. Um, and then I think the next song you're going to hate, Kentucky Downpour, those those saxophones are confident. They're just like, bah, bah, bah. they're oh, just yeah. doing their their thing. And I find it insane that they are relying so hard on these saxophones. I actually like this one a little bit okay, more wow. because it was like more funk it was, than yeah. it was that, that Louisiana Creole kind of sound. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's got a great chorus too. It's sketchy. It's sketchy. Yeah, it's a... I put that it's much catchier, um, it, and it's also very like Bruce Hornsby. Like mm-hmm. it's, yeah, and I think like that sort of energy on this song, like the catchiness. Mm-hmm. They, I think they were trying to get a lot of Kentucky Downpour on the rest of this record, and I don't think it really worked. But I actually like that song too. It started off with those horns, and I was like, nah, mm-hmm. I'm not. You're not gonna like this, but I also don't really care for that either. But I did. I actually really did like it. White Cadillac. Talking about Ronnie Hawkins, you know, sort of the first band they played with. This is an ode to him. He probably passed away or something. So they were a rockabilly band. Rockabilly band. Yeah, just backing Ronnie Hawkins before they backed Bob Dylan. Gotcha. And then they backed themselves, <laughs> homie. Uh, yeah, I like the lyrics in this. Not really so much the lyrics, but they do say that the fix is in. And nice. Any song that says <laughs> the fix is in, I'm, I'm all for that song. Uh, but otherwise, no, this was kind of just like a standard sort of blues rock type of song yeah it's just boring i put that for a lot of them unfortunately because it's just like they just happened yeah and this was this was what i was kind of getting at is it better to have a bunch of instruments that all blend together like sometimes it feels so seamless and you can sort of hear all of the instruments or do you want ones that stand out Mm -hmm. like i don't know what to get because i think they do it so perfectly on music from big pink where you've got a lot of instruments a lot of weird stuff that stand out but nothing here stands out and this is a modern record that's produced. I mean, Tom Malone uh, plays um, uh, later in the spirit, spirit of the Dance. He plays baritone, sax, tenor sax, trombone, and trumpet. It's just him. He's, he's a one-man band. Damn. And it's fascinating, and it sounds great, and it's actually... I thought I was going to hate that song, too, but mm-hmm. I kind of like him, and I like knowing that it's just one guy doing that because it sounds flawless. But does that add to like me liking the song or not? I don't fucking know. I find it I find it kind of infuriating. Like, what am I supposed to do? You have so much going on, but does it sound good? No, I think it like 
where they succeeded doing this with music from Big Pink with a lot of instrumentation and a lot of stuff going on, this just turns into this like cacophony of sounds that yeah. you can't really separate one from another and I don't know that it makes anything better. Yeah, that's kind of where I came down as well. Uh, if I Should Fail is another example of like just kind of a like a cowboy type of song. Um, like they reference Big Iron, you know, um, oh, Marty as Robin. Marty Robbins as a influence, you know, kind of a cowboy western song. Mm. And uh, yeah, just a guy trapped on a mountain trying, wanting to get off. Is okay, who sings on this song? Because I Dango. thought, uh, okay, hmm. because I thought it was the other guy, Manuel. Yeah, or, oh, Manuel's dead. Yeah, I know. Okay. Well, he has a similar vibe. That makes a lot more sense. I was like, oh man, it, it mm. sounds like that guy, but not a lot. But a lot of the backing vocals on Big Pink, there's someone with a very similar voice mm-hmm. singing with him. So I think, yeah, he can fill it in a pinch for Manuel, sort of. Okay. But uh, but Levon obviously has his own very... Well, that makes voice. me feel better because I was like, oh man, it, is that it sounds like him, but maybe like older, his voice is different. Right. I don't know. Yeah, not knowing where he went. Yeah. Now it's sad. Now it's sad. <laughs> but yeah, this one was okay. Uh, I mean, it's still pretty swampy until the weird fantasy shit like the, that happens at big pink a couple of times too there's this like weird i can't describe it other than like a an 80s movie made on an 8-bit the device <laughs> that's a fantasy movie i don't know how to, how else to describe it you're thinking of like chest fever with the fucking yeah. crazy oh which my is one god of, that's one of their best songs and one of my favorite Jesus. fucking moments in the world are you kidding me yeah i don't know why they do that no. well they do that because garth hudson is a because fucking you can Treasure, <laughs> and he does whatever he wants. So, how dare you? If they come with the rising sun, I will go by the measure of rice. I will swim in on the twigs as they move in. I got a cupcake full of rum. If the worst of all occurs, I will drink it dry before the end begins. And if I should fail, Spirit of the Dance, Dance, Dance to the Break of Day. I don't know if you can really dance to this song. I don't really know. Yeah, this was probably my favorite one, actually, which Me I thought too. was going to be weird. <laughs> but there's a lot going on in this, just like a lot of the other songs. But um, I don't know. There's like a ska horn section. And well, it's Tom Malone. Up. It's like a band. Again, oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. he's playing all the band. That is amazing to me. That's that all he, the one dude. It's all one dude. Yeah, yeah Aaron Horowitz is on accordion. Jim Eppert is on mandolin. Garth Hudson's on piano in the vocoder. Of, oh, vocoder, vo- yeah. Vocoder. Uh, Jim Wielder is on the he's on the dobro guitar and the acoustic guitar. Uh, Mike Spinoza is on percussion background. Helm is on drums. Like everyone is everywhere. You got three, four people playing percussion. On yeah, this I was gonna song. say, it's what is nuts. the percussion? Because it sounds like glass or metal pipes or something. It's like I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what they got out? But I I find this one to be really interesting because there's so much happening in there, mm-hmm. and it sounds really fun. Yeah. But I don't know if like. <laughs> Like, would it be more fun with a full band? Like a real band, not, yeah. a, not a fake band. Would it? I don't know. We'll never know. French Girls, the final song we'll talk about from their post-Last Waltz period, is just Treasure, you know? Garth Hudson, playing on a synthesized <laughs> accordion, bells, tenor sax, soprano sax, doing it all. According to Aaron Hurwitz, the producer, he said, quote, we were thinking of the 30th anniversary of Big Pink and how to reprise Genetic Method, which is that intro to Crest Fever, sort mm. of the build up to it. Um, 
which is what it's called. Uh, Garth playing the synth, uh, the synthesizers and the tenor sax and alto saxes like a Duke Ellington section. So there's this nice harmony. Then he added the accordion melodies and a few other tricks. And for Marcus, uh, Grail Marcus, he wrote the liner notes and he wrote a, a pretty definitive biography of the Basement Tapes itself. And he's a Bob Dylan scholar and a band scholar and a, a music Americana, if you will, scholar. He wrote the liner notes for this record, their last record. And he said, quote, it comes from a melody first worked out in 1971. The lyrics have since been lost, but you don't need them. And again, this is Ron Marcus saying, the lyrics have been lost. You don't need them to be sitting outside that cafe, wondering who will pass by next or where you'll go, where, or where you'll go when you rise from your table and move on to whatever new story the day holds. I think it comes from really loving Garth Hudson, yeah. as I keep calling him American, well, international treasure. And I will continue to call him that throughout this because he just does something with that instrument that the 1980s bastardized and made into garbage. Mm. And there's something beautiful about it that I think sounds weird now because of the 1980s. But if the 80s didn't exist, this would be something pretty profound. You love instrumental stuff, but I you mean, didn't love not, you didn't love Garth. Oh man, this is like this is an antagonistic uh, podcast all of a sudden. It's I great. I like that it was two minutes. That's good. Yikes. Okay, <laughs> Kelly, now's the time that we've all been waiting for. 1968 music from Big Pink. When Big Pink uh, happened was after we had followed Bob Dylan up to Woodstock. Bob had a had a home up here. We rented this house out in West Saugerties. It had a basement to it that Garth quickly turned into a recording studio. And Bob would come by. We were there all the time. And uh, between fooling around there uh, with some songs and uh, trying different things, we ended up doing Big Pink, the basement tapes, Bob's maybe uh, Nashville Skyline. Got maybe four or five records out of that time period they're just uh, hanging out with each other and trying things what are your initial thoughts again this is a lot of you because i love the band and i love big pink i love music from big pink and i love bob dylan i think this album is really cool because it's like psychedelic and jammy and experimental especially that sometimes silly um but it's just I don't know, it's really interesting to listen to because they're pushing so many boundaries musically. It's like they're just trying to see how they can manipulate sounds mm-hmm. um, and not really so worried about what it might sound like, just if we can do it. Just yeah. like, what, is this, what does it sound like when we combine these two things? What if it sound like if we alter this pedal or affect this thing in a different way? Um, some of the experiments were more accessible than others, but uh, I don't know. Overall, I think it was really... Um, admirable that they just went for it and they kind of yeah. were just trying to figure it out and it's like fuck it we're just gonna play music and hang out like i mean and that's the basement tapes I mean, is, essentially it's really rad um nothing really jumped out at me uh, as far as lyrically because i just kind of it was hard for me to grasp on to robbie robertson will say later that what do some of these songs mean? <laughs> okay. what are the lyrics of them yeah um i think some of them are very thought through but some of them are just doing what the basement tapes do which is like putting words to an idea, a feeling. It's it's feel. It's feel music. Yeah. You feel something when you listen to this. Um, there's a couple, just a few lyrics on a couple songs that we'll get to when we get yes. to those songs. But um, 
Yeah, and that dude's voice. Uh, man, what was his first name? Richard Manuel. Richard Manuel. It's so unique mm, and so one. like desperate. It, it's interesting because like, he sounds like on he's on the verge of cracking at any moment, mm. but he doesn't. So I don't know how he can hold that kind of timber, and it just like it's almost squeaking out. But it sounds so good, mm-hmm. and I prefer it a lot over because it tonally, the way that Richard Manuel sings versus Levon Helm. Yeah, Levon, you put his voice on a track, and it's instantly a country rock song. Yeah. Like it's got the he's got the twang. Yeah. And but we could take the same exact song, and when Richard Manuel is singing, like, even in the weight on the mm-hmm. weight, his voice at the end, yeah, his verse is is like it feels like a different song. It shifts for a second. It does, you know, it definitely. Yeah. I think it like kind of tonally shifts yeah. away, and then shifts back. So it's really interesting, and I think that I'm sure it was really hard to carry on without him because yes. vocalists are an instrument too, and, and if you're missing a piece, you can't recreate. You know, you can't buy another Richard. Manuel, you can get another guitar, you can get a different effects pedal. But you can't get a Robbie Robertson writing songs like that. It's like, they, they really are such an integral band. Like, mm-hmm. those five, and then you have, you know, some other people sort of subbing in and playing extra instruments that can be part of the band if you want. But that core five is maybe, I mean, I agree with people that say that that might be the best five people to ever line up behind standard rock and roll instruments and play. Mm-hmm. Like, it's an all-timer. If you're going to pick a band you want to play with, there's only one band, really. There's only one band, really. You know, you might want to take maybe the Rolling Stones, probably the Beatles, right? That'd probably be the best one to have, but how I think they, the band would be up there. How did they get the name The Band? I guess nobody had done it. So. Well, we're going to get into that, so okay. we'll, we'll talk about all of that. So really quickly, if you haven't listened to music from Big Pink, stop right now. Listen to it. Mm-hmm. Come back. It's one of the most famous albums ever. Uh, although I don't think it's their best. We'll see you next week for that one. No less than Al fucking Cooper, because there will not be a podcast without Al Cooper. He told Rolling Stone at the time, or I guess years later, he said, quote, no, actually, I think this was at the time, quote, this album was recorded in approximately two weeks. There are people who work their lives away in vain and not touch it. Oh, yeah. In 2003, Rolling Stone did their greatest albums of all time, and this was number 34 out of 500. Eric Clapton quit Cream after listening to this, and changed his entire style of music because he wanted to play like this. George Harrison loved the musicianship and the camaraderie. He specifically said, I want an album to feel like that. Roger Waters from Pink Floyd mm-hmm. uh, called it the second most influential record in rock history after Sgt. Pepper's. And some cite this as the invention of Americana mm-hmm. and roots rock and melding R&B and gospel into into country, alt country, which doesn't right. exist. None of this stuff even exists at the time. So it's it's amazing. It was recently just remastered for its 50th anniversary. You can listen to that with all of the cuts and outtakes and stereo version of it at, on Spotify. I think it's still there. Um, and it also doesn't hurt when Bob Dylan paints your album cover and you're kind of coming out of these mysterious basement tapes where people don't know who you are. And Columbia really dug into that and I think one of the reasons not only is it a masterpiece but one of the reasons why it's really great is that it had the Dylan effect it had this mysterious basement tapes and we say psychedelic and I feel the psychedelicness of it but it's actually a rebuke of that I mean I think the band is all about leaving the psychedelic material world behind you know even the 60s just behind they wanted to move on into a different into a different realm that was their whole thing however they did play at Woodstock whereas Bob Dylan famously did not Mm. and um and apparently the wait was like a huge song people lost their shit and this just came out in you know Woodstock right around the same time so it's pretty fascinating to have them there however this song this album was not recorded at Big Pink unlike the whole all the basement tapes right uh it was recorded in New York it was uh Tears of Rage Chess Fever We Can Talk 
um, This Wheel's on Fire and The Weight were all recorded over two sessions in A&R Studios in New York in early 1968. And then In a Station to Kingdom Come, Lonesome Susie, Long Black Veil, and I Shall Be Released were recorded in Los Angeles. Um, Then why why the album name? I guess maybe... we know why the album name, right? I mean, it's... And his music from that time. I mean, they were writing this when things were going on. I mean, Levon Helm wasn't even in the band. He's not on some of the basement tapes because he went off to go work at an oil rig because they've been busting their ass for years and they got nowhere. Right. And um, and when they got the money, Albert Grossman was like, Columbia Records, you signed this this band. They didn't have a name. They went by the Crackers. They were almost going to be the Crackers. Ooh, bullet dodged. Uh, <laughs> bullet dodged. <laughs> but they were just sold as Bob Dylan's backing band. They didn't have a name. So the Crackers was just like, I don't know, what do we call them? And I find it really funny that like, there is nothing to call them but the band. As if they are the band. <laughs> the one and only. The one and only. And I find that amazing. And to live up to the moniker. The band definitely did not live up to <laughs> the moniker. The band absolutely, I think absolutely did. So we're going to talk about all the songs. And this is beyond the weight the first time you're hearing any of these. And some of these songs are like huge rock mainstays. They've been covered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times hmm. so let's get into it and talk yeah. about it just from fresh eyes so let's start with the first song on the record and probably what you're talking about when you're talking about richard manuel almost breaking tears of rage maybe one of their most famous songs famously written by bob dylan and richard manuel huh. so i think that does add a little bit to his vocal and we'll hear the song again uh we will be getting this one uh, and This Wheel's on Fire and I Shall Be Released are going to be three takes that we will eventually talk about on the regular Sound on the Window. So we will revisit these songs again, which I assume is probably a good thing. I'm sure you really like these songs. Yeah. Um, I So especially being the first song, and I didn't really know what I was getting into, um, it was a little long and dirty, but I, I like that there's so many... I don't know if it's an effect on a guitar. I was like, is that a saxophone? Uh it sounds like people singing almost at some point, some of the instruments. Let me break it down for you, just so we know. Richard Manuel, of course, is on lead vocal. He's also playing the acoustic piano. Okay. Rick Danko is playing uh, bass guitar and backing vocal, so easy. Levon Helms is on the drums. Garth Hudson, we're always just going to highlight Garth, because Garth is playing a Lowry organ here. He's also playing the soprano saxophone. Right. Robertson is playing an electric guitar through a black box. Okay. And John Simon, who is sort of subbing in here, uh, he's playing tambourine and a baritone horn. Okay. So that's the whole mix-up. And you're gotcha. starting to hear, yeah, those weird... It's probably that black box. It's yeah. making that weird longing. Oh, it's, oh, it's kind of like It's so goosebumps. cool. It's so beautiful, yeah. It's just, I, I knew when I was listening to it, even though I have no context or <laughs> information, yeah. I was like, people weren't doing this. There's no way, like, they were doing something unique. Yeah. If, like, and I might be wrong, but I feel like no one else was doing what they were doing at the time. I think that's what made it interesting to hear. Yeah. I think that's why The Basement Tapes is still something people go back to, because it is just stripping everything away. But I think in a way that, like, we, that, that narrative exists, it it exists today still. We always talk about a band coming back after three or four records that suck and they want to strip away and get mm. back to the basics, quote unquote. And I think that's, they're nothing, doing nothing but talking about something like this, getting back to the roots, getting back to the beginning. There's like a big bang 
quality to this music. Like it just didn't exist anywhere and it just, yeah. nowhere and it just exists. And I don't think there's going back to it. I think the band maybe chased that their whole life to try to get back. Mm-hmm. We got to go back, Kate. You can't go back. <laughs> As Bob Dylan will say in Mississippi, you know, you can always come back, but you can't come back all the way. And I think that's the truth. Like this is a moment in time. You'll never get it back. This song is so highly praised. Um, critics have written entire articles and stuff and scholars about King Lear, about psychedelic culture and materialism. Sid Griffith said that these four minutes are, quote, representative of community, ageless truths, and the unbreakable bonds of family as anything in the band's canon or anyone else's canon. Grau Marcus uh, talks about the famous beginning, the very first lines, we carried you in our arms on Independence Day is the very mm-hmm. first line. He likens that to, quote, an ache from deep in the chest, a voice thick with care in the first recording of the song. The song from the start is the start of a sermon, an elegy, a Kaddish. Yeah, because it sounds, it, it's like about the Vietnam War, right? Like people coming home from war, or just the surrounding culture, what is happening. Yeah, I mean, all of it. It's it's like the, yeah, the death throes of like King Lear to, yeah, the disillusionment of war and, yeah, trying to people. bring it back. I mean, this is almost like, yeah, I mean, by saying like this, this talking about unbreakable bonds and family and things like that, like this is the statement of the band mm-hmm. right here. It's Tears of Rage. And I think it's appropriate that Bob Dylan co-wrote it, honestly. And Manuel wrote it. Yeah. I think the two of them are like so integral to this even existing. And according to Levon Helm from his book about the band, uh, when his uh, memoir of his time in the band, he said, Richard sang one of the best performances of his life. And I think so. I think this song is impossible to listen to and not like... Just want to like rip your skin apart. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's so good. I can't listen to it regularly because I don't want to like spoil how good it is. I'll usually go right to Kingdom Come. So let's talk about to Kingdom Come. So if you're sitting here listening to Tears of Rage, you're probably like, "Ooh, this is gonna be a sad record." Yeah, and I mean, then it does set the tone. But no, you get yeah. this nice little rock song, and I think that a lot of Kingdom Come is very indicative of like what they were trying to go back to mm. with like Jericho and all of that, that type of guitar work and just kind of like the rocking and rolling along. Yeah. I mean, it was, this is where I think that I got the psychedelic flavor from mm, bit, because it yeah. definitely was that guitar, like the jammy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's fine. It's, it's a good song. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and this is, I think again, the band at its like most straightforward, you know, Robertson is on lead vocal on this one and guitar. Uh, Manuel is on piano, Danko on bass, Helm on drums, and Garth on the Lowry organ. So it's kind of a basic mm-hmm. um, basement tape setup. They're not using so much technology. Not so much technology. And I think it, it's a good song. Yeah. But it's nothing like to write home about, like we'll get to later. Track number three, In a Station, written by Richard Manuel, sung by Richard Manuel. Um, we've got a couple of weird things on here. Robbie Robertson, of course, is playing electric guitar and acoustic. Helms is on drums, but Garth Hudson is playing the clavinet. The clavinet, mm-hmm. which is an amplified clavichord, and he's also playing electric piano. Manuel called this his George Harrison song because <laughs> of the lyrics. Okay. Yeah, uh, this was a miss for me. Oh, I was wow. like, what is that intro? What is this 8-bit fantasy music? But I, I appreciate that it's like, mm, I don't know, like that was new. I'm sure that they were mm. doing something that, I don't know. The NES doesn't come out until 1986, oh right? <laughs> well, no, it just... It just yeah, they're making these sounds yeah. that don't exist the yet. The clava, clavinet. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This, this was invented in 1967. Yeah. Okay. So this is brand new technology, brand new. and I really like that about this whole album is that they're not afraid to use it while they're trying to maybe emotionally say, like emotionally or spiritually, stay like stripped and bare and mm-hmm. do this. Like they're leaning heavily on sure. new technology, which is very cool because like that's a quick way to make an impression. I just like unique. to imagine Garth Hudson like with a he's opening up like West German. 
um, you know, audio, like um, instrument books or whatever, you know, like all the latest technology right. was like scratching itself. Like, <laughs> yeah, I gotta get my itch. Exactly. You gotta give me that new fucking clavinet. Oh my God, I need, I need this. I need that. Yeah. I need to become a master at that thing. Like, yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is another like, I don't really come back to the song that much it's just it's a good song and i i contrast this with should i fail because it's got the same sort of idea like once i climbed on the face of the mountain and ate a wild fruit there it's the same thing should i fail he's stuck on a mountain Mm -hmm. but there are two very different songs from two very different time periods and two very obviously richard manuel did not write um should i fail but i i just find it really interesting especially at tears of after tears of rage this song is very wistful uh and manuel is singing very beautifully Mm -hmm. as, as opposed to almost breaking down in tears of rage so i think I think just with the first three songs, you set this kind of cool tempo with what we're doing here. Well, it keeps you off balance. It does. It it's really like, does. you don't know what's happening next. No, we don't know what's happening next. We know what's happening <laughs> next. And it's Caledonia Mission, written by Robbie Robertson, sung by, by Danko. So this is the Rick Danko on lead vocal. We've got, obviously, the same people doing all their stuff. And this is another straightforward rock song. John Simon joins up to play piano, but it's just uh, Garth is just playing the, the organ. Watchman covers me So it must be that organ that's giving me that fantasy vibe, because like this definitely. This starts off because my note is the piano and organ are banging, and that's probably <laughs> where you're like, question. <laughs> yeah. How are you making that sound? Can you please stop making that sound? It I also don't has a really cool Robertson lick too, like. Bum, oh yeah, bum, um, bum. I put especially in the chorus that there's like a get down, like everybody's yeah. bringing down time. Well, it's really yeah. great. Apparently, this is also a real story. It's kind of tough because the lyrics don't really line up to it, but apparently, uh, Rick Danko. Let me just quote him. Quote, we got set up. The guy was trying to impress my girlfriend. None of us would have known him, but I knew what time we were coming through the border that day, and he told the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that we were bringing a trunk full of pot. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently this is a real story of... uh, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a lament on the girl. So the girl told... His girlfriend told this guy that they had a trunk full of pot and this guy didn't like Danko so he went to the police. So he's like lamenting like why would you tell on me or whatever the chorus is. So that's fun. That kind of makes it a more fun song cuz yeah. that's another one that just it just gearing you up, baby, gearing you up. For maybe their their finest moment, The Wait, one yeah. of the best songs in rock and roll music. One of my favorite like captured two record performances ever. Ever. It sounds so good. The song was written by Robbie Robertson, although we'll get into some drama in a moment. <laughs> and the vocal is famously Levon Helm with Danko is actually doing the fourth verse. So not oh, okay. Manuel. So it does have that weird, because it is different, but it's not Manuel. So it yeah, wow. Okay, so the verse is very similar. This song was written in the future for Singular AT&T. It was in the singular right. commercial. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then they went back in time and gaslit America and just said, <laughs> no, it was always on their first record. Famously, that's where this song comes from. Singular Wireless. Never forget. More bars in more places. That's the goal of Singular's all-over network. With the largest digital voice and data coverage in America. More bars in more places. Thanks to Singular and AT&T Wireless joining forces. Welcome to the new Singular. We're raising the bar. 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is a hugely famous song. I mean, it's it's, it's catchy. It has a clearly defined chorus, and um, their harmony is amazing and something that people the world over have sang in many a car. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know. It's just, it's really, it feels good. Um, it does feel good. I'm glad that there are multiple singers because I was losing my mind. I was like, this is not the same people. I don't know what's happening. There's a country guy and a not country guy. And I don't know what's going on. And it's so funny too, coming at it from this because like Levon, I think it's so integral to the band and some of their greatest songs are very Levon heavy. And the fact that he's kind of a rando, like, I mean, it's really Manuel's record, but uh, you know, I think Levon is the only one to sing this. He's the only one to sing this. I cannot imagine it as, as Manuel. Sorry. I just can't. Well, It'd it's that weird. flavor. You needed it for this mm-hmm. this song. But yeah, I, again, I never really grasped any of the lyrics. This one, the chorus, oh. is pretty easy. But um, just hearing, like, you're going on, hey, wait a minute, Chester. <laughs> like, wait, what? It does the classic perfect Bob Dylan shit. I mean, honestly, uh, introducing characters left and right. I mean, this is no less than Jesus in the very first verse. You know, oh, really? Looking for, oh, he's looking for a place to stay. And they're saying, no, you oh. got to get on out of here. <laughs> so it's just, which made me think of a, a verse in Bob Dylan he has a song called Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. And there's a line, too, when he's looking for shelter as well. And uh, and he's rebuffed by somebody. And he says, you know, they refuse Jesus, too. And then the, and then the other character says, yeah, but you're not him. <laughs> uh, and, of course, we also have Fanny. We've got yeah. Carmen and the devil walking side by side. We've got Miss Moses, which, of course, um, that's a famous biblical hymn. Uh, we have... Um, Luke waiting for the judgment day. Mm-hmm. We've got young Anna Lee, crazy Chester, Jack the dog. Right. I mean... Name me a better gang. <laughs> Get out of here. I, but I think it's like essential. Bob Dylan does this stuff all the time with the undertakers and the politicians and the people oh. in wheelchairs. Like they're just. The Orient They're s- weird. They're scary almost. Like, and especially like this song is basically just um, like a tit for tat sort of thing. Like you do me a favor. I'll do you a favor. You might not know what the favor is going to be, but like I need your help. But I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to help you. Because it always seems like the other person doesn't really ask for anything, but gets kind of like told what to do. Like, you're going to give me a place to stay and I'm going to give you Jack, Jack, I'm going to give you Jack the dog. (laughs) He's like, but I can't really take care of a dog. And then it's like, do your best. And I find that to be like a mystical character walking through and just like giving people things they don't know that they need. Mm. But then when he leaves, they're like, oh, wow, I really do love young Annalie. Like, it's really weird that she would be here. And like, wow, isn't it cool that we got together? fucking weird guy like set yeah. us up it's like i love jack the dog this is my favorite person <laughs> in the world i my wife died a couple years ago and i love jack the dog now if only if that guy never came by and gave me jack the dog just for a night in the bed like what a different life i would have i just found it really fun and it sort of like talks about the weirdness of life you know just how you know just how strange it is that things happen it's a cannonball number 41 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Pitchfork Media, they did a whole 60 thing, um, and they named it the 13th best song of the 1960s. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame called it one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. And PBS, even PBS had to get in on this and said, quote, it's a masterpiece of biblical illusions, enigmatic lines, and iconic characters, and notes its enduring popularity as an essential part of the American songbook. The band, however, did not get credit for this song. Everyone was individually credited. 
So <laughs> instead of the band being credited, it was it was um, you know Jamie, Robbie Robertson, Rick Danko, Manuel Hudson, and Helm instead of all together. And this led to acrimony later on because this is one of their biggest songs. Well, yeah. So the songwriting credit, and that's the credit for the music. The songwriting credit went to Robbie Robertson alone. The band being collaboratively, Bunhelm was like calling bullshit. Was saying no, we all we all do this. He said Robertson gets about sixty percent, uh, Manuel and Danko with about twenty percent. Much of the music goes to Garth Hudson, and he's like, and he's like, I just get a small credit for myself for the lyrics for some of the lyrics too. But that's a much more realistic breakdown of the weight. But Robbie gets all the credit for this songwriting, hmm. and so that caused a lot of acrimony in the band, and that's one of the reasons why they're no longer a band. See what I did? Also, everyone's dead. So, oh my god. <laughs> Who is Fanny? I don't know. I mean, it's it's a British word for for lady parts. For lady parts, according to Peter Viney, who has an absolutely wonderful website about the band, and I highly recommend anybody go to it because it is the source for all of this. So, like, shout out to him. But he says that he was told, "quote A Canadian musician swore to me in 1971 that take a load off Fanny was all about catching and disseminating the clap." <laughs> and that there was a double take off could also be of presumably using English frontal sense of the word Fanny rather than the American posterior one. Yeah. So yeah, that Fanny, not the other one. So take a load off Fanny of Fanny, take a load of Fanny and you put the load right on me. <laughs> the, the clap is Miss Fanny's regards to everyone. Of course, yeah. being Canadian, he claimed, I love that. Of course, being Canadian, he claimed to have been told this directly by a member of the band, which I love. I mean, 20 Canadians years later, they do. 20 years later, another Canadian assured me <laughs> that, that this was perfectly true. Again, tracing the explanation directly to an unnamed band member. Love it. I can easily believe that a band member told someone this, but it doesn't mean it's true. And none of them have ever betrayed a lack of sense of humor, which I find is important. Like they would have copped to that if it yeah. was. But I do find it interesting. Like I don't know what any of this fucking means, and I think that is what makes it a great song. It's because it makes no sense, but you know what the words are. There's no like, mm-hmm. well, is it, am I getting a lyric wrong? Like no, it's literally take a load off Fanny, take a load for free, <laughs> take a load off Fanny, and put the load right on me. So yeah. How simple, magnificent. What a magnificent song. It is. But now I can just see the clap. The clap, yeah. Just the clap, that's all. So we move on from the weight, which centers and really anchors the record, and we move on to a song that I fucking love called Mm -hmm. We Can Talk. Um, Written by Richard Manuel. The vocals are Manuel, Helm, and Danko, all talking. Uh, Robertson on electric guitar. Again, this is a pretty standard lineup. Lowry organ for Hudson, and then just regular instruments for everyone. Yeah, so listening to this album, I... Was trying. I was like making a point to ones that jumped out at me, and I only actually put two songs. That are, or okay, that makes more sense. There's only like three songs. I was like, oh, these. Not that the rest weren't good, but like yeah. these are the standout ones, and right. this is certainly the first one on the album. I think that was like standout. It gave me a very uh, Schoolhouse Rock vibe. Like mm-hmm. I'm just a bit on yep. <laughs> and just like again checking in and out of the songs to hear like, did you ever the try to milk a cow? But then I love after that someone in the back milk a cow. I know, <laughs> but that's the band shit. Like I feel yep. like they just made this up on the spot, which is another bit of acrimony with fucking Helms and shit because. It's just like, this is what we did. And, and according to Helm in his, in his memoir, he said, quote, it's a funny song that really captures the way we spoke to one another. Lots of outrageous rhymes and corny puns. Hmm. And you really get a sense of that. It is very basement tapey. 
where it's just almost just playing dun, dun, mm-hmm. dun, 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 and then dun. just going with it and, and they just, just go. what comes out yeah. yeah and it feels like almost and it was probably s- scripted and mm-hmm. of course it was but did you ever milk a cow and then to have someone be like milk a cow <laughs> yeah. it, it feels so real and if it was real it makes it even better right. I mean I don't believe it is but man they knew what they were trying to get when they have a line like that because it's a killer line yeah and it's and funny it's funny it's a funny song my favorite line in on this album is in this song where it's like i'd rather be burned in canada than freeze here in the south yep i can love it it's amazing i love that and i love the idea of that what a great song i know it's so fun it's so fun and i think that the like irreverence that's a little bit in all of the songs is really highlighted here of how much fun they're having and we've and just inside on the window we've listened to those weird irreverent songs i mean close on saga and all of them make (laughs) no sense they're just so strange Mm -hmm. but that is the vibe and i think the vibe definitely carries over to that song The only song on this record that was not written by the band, this is a standard song, a traditional song. Oh, is it? Song. Yeah. It's called that Lone Black Veil. Yeah. Okay. So the vocals are Manuel, but it was written uh, by Mary John Wilkin and Danny Dill. But it, it's been covered by everyone in the world. I might have covered it at some point, honestly. I don't know. Um, from Wikipedia, because I never really heard about this song, from Wikipedia it said, it's sold from the point of view uh, of an executed man falsely accused of murder. Uh, he refuses to provide an alibi since that night he was uh, having an affair with his best friend's wife right. and would rather die than t- you know than tell a secret. The chorus describes the woman mourning at the gravesite, uh, wearing a long back black veil and enduring a wailing wind. Yeah, I like this one. This was the one that lyrically stood out to me the most, just because it was a narrative song. Yeah, it was. and it was really interesting. And that like, makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't write it. Yeah, it does. Um, and I think that that line specifically, I would when he says. Uh, in the arms of my best friend's wife, just like st- stood out so much. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is pretty cool. Way to go, guy. And a really good, I think it's well sung. Yeah. Well. I think it's a very beautiful song. And I think he's really good at those sort of wistful, wistful songs, especially on this record. Because of the quality of his voice, he just, it's emotional, mm-hmm. even if he's not intending it to be, which I, I'm assuming he would on this time because it's like, you know, it's like a fucking funeral to. march. Right. But, and that's uh, true. It is. Yeah. But he just has that. It, his voice is so unique. Yeah. It's amazing. We're going to get to probably the most divisive song on this. A chest fever? Chest fever. Well, how divisive? Oh, I thought you were not going to be. Oh, no, this is my what, oh, this is two, the number one. two of three. You've described uh, from this record, obviously you're going to get I Shall Be Released and stuff on their greatest hits, but... Chess Fever is always there. Chess Fever, I think Beyond the Weight is probably their most played song Okay. as well. Uh, but this was written by Robbie Robertson, and the vocals are Manuel. The only weird thing about this is John Simon's here playing some baritone sax. Garth Hudson, famous on that fucking organ and also on a tenor sax as well. Okay. And he's doing shit. This is a showcase for Garth Hudson to play that fucking organ. Get it, baby. Get oh, yeah. it, baby. It gave me spirit in the sky vibes, like that that same quality. Not yeah. as not as like for me when you hear spirit in the sky, it's like somebody's about to do something badass. Like we're gearing up. This is the montage where we're all getting ready to do something badass. True, this is a montage song. <laughs> oh, absolutely. This gave me that same kind of feel, but for a different thing. Not so much montage, but definitely in the background of, in a scene of a movie that was in the '60s, like or even '70s, like Days They Confused or something. Yeah. 
definitely like a slow-mo of a girl getting out of a pool or something like mm. it was it's very that kind of uh vibe to me but i yeah I, I liked it a lot i didn't know what the instruments were it's those saxophones i guess that's giving that that's weird, that yeah. buzz um but yeah i i like this one a lot yeah this song robbie robertson said quote I'm not sure I know the words to chest fever. I'm not even sure that there are words to chest fever. Amazing. Which is kind of true. I will quote this line at the very end. She's so stoned. She's stoned, said the Swede to the moon calf, and the moon calf agreed. I'm like a viper in shock in my eyes and a clock. She was just there somewhere, and here I am again. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. Man, I feel so much better about not listening to the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I, you definitely did. And I don't think that that's super important. Yeah. is like bro you're giving away your own case because if it's true that they're just going in there and sort of ad-libbing stuff like then that's what you guys did you guys just went in there and played it like the basement tapes where you're just ad-libbing making shit up and it doesn't really matter because this song is five minutes long and it has nothing to do with the words it is just pure garth it's pure solo in the middle Mm. there which is amazing uh that organ solo paul evans writing for the rolling stone album guide for this album said quote the organ mastery of chess fever Unleash the band's secret weapon. Garth Hudson. <laughs> Peter Vinny, again, historian of the band, said, quote, When Levon had complained about the share of royalties at this period, this is the song that he quotes. His theme is always that Garth's contribution was always grossly underestimated and undercredited. As he says, quote, What do you remember about Chess Fever? The lyrics or the organ part? Mm. And this song also got me thinking about the very first review of this record in the New York Times. Uh, Richard Goldstein wrote about it trying to describe like what's going on and i found this song to be kind of interesting because it does have a vibe especially with that organ that sounds like the 80s or something it takes you somewhere different but at the time it must have been pretty crazy he goes on to quote say say this he says quote there were no dulcimers or synthesizers here just a basic rock combination of organ which is a basic Basic combination uh, organ drums and guitars augmented by an occasional piano and a pinch of brass there are no 10 minute flights of atonality either for the most part the band eschews solos to create a unified sound which forces attention to the material at hand garth hudson is an exciting charismatic organist but he plays to the group not the audience there's a novelty in rock which is an exhibitionist medium yet the modest virtuosity of each of these band members displays makes many of today's higher power groups seem terribly diffuse. And I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, you can hear for something like this, it doesn't feel like he's sitting there solo and grabbing his crotch. Like, right, yeah. It feels like he's playing something that's got this, like, melancholy to it even. Whatever the fuck is happening, a chest fever. But even the idea of a chest fever, what is that? I think that it's really apt to say that they're focusing on cooperation. Mm-hmm. It, it, regardless of the world outside, I mean, that's really evident throughout yeah. the whole thing. And I guess that's the whole point, right, yeah. behind music from Big Pink. So earlier I said that Richard Manuel tried to write sort of a pop song. 
Mm-hmm. Not a pop song, but like a beautiful, mournful ballad that would be played forever and ever. Lonesome Susie was, this, was what he tried to go yeah. for. So that was written and vocal by him. Uh, Helm said that Lonesome Susie was Richard's failed attempt to write a hit record. You know, I... I uh... The dreamy organ is dreamy, and I do like this song. I wish this was an Otis Redding or Sam Cooke song, because mm. that is 100% what it feels like. It's probably been covered a million times, too. <laughs> I mean, all of these have, you know. Yeah, I bet. But yeah, I, I immediately got more of like a soul yeah. than, than any kind of rock. And I find that interesting, too. and I guess that's what was unique about it at the time, that we kind of take for granted now, mm-hmm. is that they were bringing songs, like a song like this could be sung by a soul singer, and it yeah. would make sense. Absolutely. And I don't think you could do that with other songs. So it's not bad. It feels really out of place. <laughs> But it, well, some people would say that the weight is truly the out of place one because hmm. the weight. When we listen next week to the band, their self-titled record in 1969, the follow-up, which I think is the best thing they've ever done. If it, if the weight was on there, we're talking about an all-time classic. Hmm. I think that album is better than this one, but I think the weight really is where the direction of the band is going. Less of this stuff, right. like they did all of this stuff on the basement tapes, and they made a record of the music from Big Pink. But when they decided, what are we going to do next as a band? They said, the fucking wait. Right. Let's bring that shit. Let's do Up on Cripple Creek. Let's do The Night They Dribble, Dixie Down. Let's do Jawbone. Like, those songs are much more of what I think and I hear in the band. And I think, weirdly enough, the 90s stuff that we listened to at the beginning definitely pulls more from the band and the band forward than it does from music from Big Pink. Because it's just a special moment that you're not really going to get back. Even though I think the band, the self-titled next year, is better than this. Because it takes a lot of this good stuff, but it doesn't have just the soulfulness. And I think it's a Dylan. That Dylan influence is kind of gone. There's no Dylan songs on the next one. It's truly, can they stand on their own? And they do, for sure. But we'll get to that. Speaking of Dylan, we close with two Dylan tracks. Probably two, again, of the more famous songs by the band and by Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan still plays this one live. He played it in 2012, I think was the last time he played it. And we will definitely talk about this one. This Wheel's on Fire, written by Bob Dylan and Rick Danko. Uh, the vocals are Danko as well. And Danko recounted how it came to be. He said, quote, we would come in together every day and work, and Dylan would come over as well. He gave me the typewritten lyrics to This Wheel's on Fire. At that time, I was teaching myself how to play piano. Some music I had written on the piano that day before just seemed to fit with Dylan's lyrics. I worked out the phrasing and the melody, then Dylan and I wrote the chorus together. So, very interesting. Obviously, really collaborative between the two. What do you think about this song? This song is kind of bonkers, actually. Like, the way it's... Oh, my God. Yeah. That's what I was like. Proto-video game shit. Like, this is amazing that they're making these sounds with Mm -hmm. the instruments that won't exist for a while to do it. Especially the digitized media. The idea of that. I would even go so far as to say these, these instruments don't actually exist at all. Because this one is the most interesting one for me. So Danko obviously is doing his own thing. Levon Helm is drums and backing vocal. Garth Hudson, though. We'll get to our Garth Hudson. <laughs> Richard Manuel's piano, backing vocal. Great. Robbie, electric guitar. Clutch. All of those guys clutch. My boy Garth. My boy Garth is sitting over here playing a clavinet. Right. Of course. He's got the Lowry organ as well. He's playing a roxichord, which is an electric keyboard invented in 67 as well to approximate the sound of a harpsichord. Holy shit. And he's playing that through a telegraph key. And a telegraph key is literally the switching device used to do Morse code. So he's forcing that through a telegraph key to make that weird ass sound. So it's not only an elect. Yeah, that's what I mean. International treasure, Garth Hudson. If your memory serves you well.
standout track of the album for sure. It's just so interesting, and I think that the the thing that grew, grabbed me about this this whole album was um, their ingenuity mm. and creativity, and that's like fully showcased in this song. Totally. I think that's like the perfect encapsulation of what they were doing. Like, yeah, that that instrument doesn't exist because it's three instruments. It's three instruments. <laughs> yeah. And a fucking non-instrument, just right. like through it. It's it's amazing. And obviously bands like the, George Harrison, the Beatles love this shit too. Mm. And there's no mistaking like this coming out in the same year as uh, Sgt. Pepper's. You know, they're, they're all working on something together, sort of separate, but that is in the culture. And it's really interesting how the those two very particular albums, and of course, Roger Waters before said the, those two are the most influential records in rock and roll, <laughs> and those both came out in 1968. Um, it's it's interesting to see how the two are very different, but kind of are doing the same thing because the Beatles, famously for Sgt. Pepper, were famously doing crazy shit like that, playing in bathtubs, playing upside down, playing through things, and that's how they achieved all those sounds because those sounds are not real. Um, so it's just cool that Garth Hudson's over here like, I see you. I think it's, yeah, I think it's really neat that they're like, let's just get high and do whatever we want and make weird shit. And who cares? It's like the opposite of that quote from Jurassic Park where he's like, you were so busy about seeing what, what you could do. You never stopped to ask if you should do it. Yeah. Like, that's them. That's them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, but in the best of possible way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a highlight on the record for sure. Uh, and then we kind of bring it down. I think that uh, the last song on the record, I Shall Be Released fits very perfectly with Tears of Rage. The two are obviously both Dylan songs. Mm. And this song is incredibly famous and lives well beyond the band and Bob Dylan, of course, who has recorded multiple versions of this. So we will definitely be talking about this again. This is written exclusively by Bob Dylan and the vocals are Richard Manuel. Going back once again to that longing, Mm -hmm. that wanting to rip your fucking skin off. I love it. Yeah. I I also thought this was like a could have been a Motown, same cook. Mm. Oh, it, it definitely was covered by all of them. I mean, yeah. even just the idea, just the, the lyrical content, you know, I shall be released. Um, you're talking about redemption and sin and um, crying out that you've been framed. You know, it's just seeing the world. It's not even like a literal prison. It's like a prison of the mind, you know. Do we listen to this song, Bob Dylan's version? No, we haven't okay. We haven't heard this song yet. Okay. But it's, but once you hear it, I think you've, you've definitely heard this song before. Yeah. At least by somebody. Oh, yeah. I, or... Elvis, we were talking about. We were just, yeah, no, I'm sorry, we were, yeah, Yeah. that's actually on our episode Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, Went to See the Gypsy, uh, his rendition, the full rendition of him doing it. Yes, absolutely. And he did an amazing job, very haunting as well. Um, And this is another interesting one, too. So Manuel is obviously singing. Uh, He's got the harmony vocals, too, on the chorus, playing piano. Danko on bass, harmony on the chorus. Levon Helm is playing the drums, but he's playing the snare drum. He's strumming it by hand, he's strumming the drum. Okay. Uh, and he does the harmony as well. And then Garth is on the Roxichord again. He's on not on the Lowry, but on the Roxichord organ. And then, of course, Robbie is playing the acoustic guitar. Yeah, those high notes during the chorus, they just sound so good together, all of them. That yeah. makes sense about the, the drum. I'm yeah. glad you said something. Because it's so subdued. Mm-hmm. I was wondering why it's like that. And I, I like drummers that can, yeah, pull it back a little. Shit. And that's what they were saying in the New York Times review. Like, this is not a band that's going out to be audacious. Like, mm-hmm. they're trying to make fucking good-ass music. All day long I hear crying out that he was free I see my light come shining from the west down to the east in a day now in a day now I shall be released. 
influenced by you know gospel music because i can't go an episode without talking about clinton <laughs> halen he says uh quote he is characteristically he's talking about bob dylan writing the song uh he being bob dylan is characteristically careful not to confuse simplicity of construction with a con- with a commiserate simplicity of meaning the release that he is singing about and that richard manuel echoes is not from mere prison bars but rather from the cage of physical existence and i think that's important because this song is really fucking simple and you can really make it wrong and bob dylan it took i think the one reason he maybe never really released it is he tried like five different versions of it trying to sing it in and different ways felt, right and it just they all kind of feel weird i think this is kind of the way to do it and you kind of need a band because you need like dirgy you need somebody strumming a snare drum right you know like it's 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 a really good song it's a hard one to listen to too i don't really go back to it a lot because it's a very emotional song a very it's like cathartic. You want to, you know, feel something. So yeah. it's a very wonderful album that I like to put on and listen to all the way through. Whereas uh, from the band and from uh, the the subsequent albums after that, it's more of kind of I, I I can just listen to individual songs. But I like this as a whole piece. Yeah, it, it felt good. I didn't want to like skip over any of the songs, even the ones that were kind of wacky at the beginning with the weird fantasy vibe but uh yeah it it was really nice to listen to and then really disappointing to get to the next uh, series of songs yeah well, once it ended just like with uh with like Alcon trio we're yeah. gonna be kind of you know so this is kind of the worst night of the show to go to maybe the best record you can arguably make the case that it's the best especially straight on through but you definitely to get here had to listen to fucking levon helms over there playing fucking move to Japan. Ugh. That was just... And really, you know, again, Bob Dylan has plenty of, of this, mm-hmm. but this is that classic, you know, Buffy highs and lows. It, yeah. It's just hard to realize that they're the same people sometimes. And uh, it's hard to argue against a record that is genre inventing. You mm-hmm. know, it's hard to it's hard to, to make that kind of stuff up. I'm going to leave with Richard Goldstein in his 68 um, review of... Music from Big Pink, he says, quote, no producer in a 72-track recording studio could evoke Dylan's terse melancholy as honestly as these five friends have with their wailing voices and mangy sound. And I think that's true. And I think you want to listen to that wailing voice and mangy sound. Join us next Thursday for our next episode, Kelly. We're going to be talking about the band, their self-titled 1969 record. And we're going to be contrasting that with a little album which is their last official album, if you will, before they came back in the 90s, called Islands. Hmm. Islands. <laughs> cool, Kelly. Well, uh, this is the last episode of, uh, this is the, first, the end of the first episode of the band month, not to be confused with Woody Guthrie month, <laughs> which we did last year in October. Um, Woody Guthrie month was incredibly important. It was. It yeah. was really cool to dig into this influence, and the band is such an immediate influence to Bob Dylan. So I think this will be very indicative of where we're going to go forward with Bob. So I'm excited. And we do have a lot of supplementals that we promised for the basement tapes for a long time. So I think this will lead us to want to do it more. Cause now when we talk about all these people, it'll make a lot more sense who they are. Right. And I think that's integral to understanding the basement tapes. Cause even for me, I don't really know every in and out of every song, but I would love to start to understand, especially Garth Hudson and how he's doing the things that he does. Oh my God. Yeah. So we'll be back to talk about Garth Hudson and yeah, I don't know the rest of everyone else <laughs> next Thursday. So tune in. Otherwise, we are in real time on Sign on the Window doing our own thing. Go check that out. We're also online, sotwpod.com. You know the spiel. Go to Patreon, patreon.com slash sotwpod. We want to do more mixed-up confusions, more supplementals, but we agreed to do the Sign on the Window every week just to hang out and talk. 
But we want to talk about other stuff too, but it's hard to do when it's just, you know, we're doing it for free. We're doing it because we love it, but it just means that the schedule is not going to be up to date. Mm. We're just going to kind of do it when we feel like it. So if that's cool for you, then keep listening. Tell your friends about it. And if you want us to do more like this, feel free to contribute some money. Please and thank you. Please and thank you. We'll see you on Thursday for the next band. We'll see you on Monday for the next Sound on the Window. Have a great night, America. Or day. Whatever. (laughs) I see my light come shining From the west down to the east